In Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunsets glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from falling hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders Field. Welcome to the special episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. So today's episode, um, as it is November 11th when this gets released, uh, and Andy and I are both very supportive of our military uh, here in Canada and the sacrifices they make, we decided we wanted to do a special Rabbit Holes um, episode featuring stories that remember those who fought in the wars. So that's what we're doing today. It is. Yeah. So before we get into that, though, let's talk about where it is you can find us. So you can find us on our website at rabbitholespodcast.com, uh, email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com, Twitter at rabbitholespod, Facebook rabbitholespodcast page, and Instagram, and you can see us on rabbitholespodcast. Uh, we're pretty active on the socials, so come and check us out. Absolutely. Uh, also, if you want to take a few minutes and head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading this episode and leave us a short review, that would be greatly appreciated. So uh, let's get into stories for this week. Andy, uh, what is your connection that you feel with our military? Not necessarily Canadian military. Uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, Jack Dooley, uh, fought for the British Navy in the Second World War. As Newfoundlanders, we were not part of Canada at the time, mm -hmm. so uh, he fought with the British. He was in the Navy. His four, five of his six ships, or four of his five ships that he was on, were torpedoed and sunk. Uh, uh, he spent uh, about six months in a hospital in Britain, and then when he was uh, discharged, the boat that he was assigned to had left, so he had a little while of milling around hmm. uh, to do. And he uh, yeah, he doesn't he didn't talk much, so I don't know too much about his service record. Also, my grandparents were quite old by the time I was young enough, old enough to actually like really remember chatting with them about stuff. Mm -hmm. They both died when I was in elementary school, quite young, um, and, but they were already in their, like, mid-80s. Mm -hmm. They'd be both in their hundreds if they were still <laughs> alive. Um, but, uh, yeah, my grandfather was in the British uh, Navy during the Second World War. He, uh, he actually, when he got out from the hospital, and he stayed in, like, sort of a hostel for soldiers his first night, but he had six months pay, right. his pay packet of six months of pay, yeah. um, because he didn't, they just gave it to him when he got discharged from the hospital. And that night, everything got stolen from no. him. So he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He met uh, a local Salvation Army minister. Mm -hmm. And that minister let him stay in their house until his Aww. his ship came back in and he, he could be deployed again. So that's why he always had a fondness for the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, you're from Newfoundland, and I think all of our provinces are pretty supportive, but there's something about the Newfies. They just sacrificed a lot at a lot of different battles, the battalions they put together. Yeah, so us, we celebrate uh, July 1st, which is Canada Day, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a full day celebration for the most of the rest of the country, but in Newfoundland, it is a Remembrance Day in the morning, as it remembers the Battle of Beaumont Hamel, where the province of Newfoundland, the regiment, the, the Newfoundland regiment, fought again under the British Army uh, in the First World War, and that day, six, a little over 600 young men went over the trenches in the First World War, and only about 48 of them came back. Mm-hmm. So at that time, uh, Newfoundland was not a very populated province. It's a devastating so it's, number. It's a devastating number. It was There was not a point at any point that there was not a family in the province who wasn't, he didn't lose a father, uh, a brother, a son, a cousin, like somebody lost, every family lost somebody. And it was just a poorly planned execution by that time. Uh, that uh, siege in particular, uh, the Newfoundland Regiment was decimated, the Scottish Regiment, and I think an Irish Regiment. And by the time it got up to the point where the English were sending over their actual English troops, they were like, "Ah, eh, this is not a good idea. Yeah, you know it's bad when that happens. <laughs> they just called them back, and by that time it was just too late for, for so many young men. But yeah, yeah. so... And then in the afternoon, you get sort of the July 1st celebrations, but July 1st is always a somewhat tempered day. Yeah. Which I've been told is unpatriotic, but I say fuck it. So No, I think that's probably the most patriotic way to spend the day. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, we, we are, uh, we're a small but mighty province of <laughs> Canadians. Yes. Canadians. Although I had this debate, am I a first generation Canadian or am I a Canadian? Depends on what you look at it. Or second generation Canadian, or, or am I? True, because they were British citizens until 49. So. Yeah, so my grandfather would have been born a British citizen and citizen and naturalized. My mom was born a Canadian citizen, but I have friends that I grew up with whose parents weren't. Right. They were born before Confederation. So yeah. My are, dad was born 49, so. Yeah, so are we, depends on how you look at yeah. it. Was I <laughs> Was my family here since the 1800s, or am I a second generation Canadian? So, curious. <laughs> And my own connection with the um, Remembrance Day is uh, my father served from the time he was a teenager through till a couple years ago when he just decided on a Wednesday morning he was done and quit his job. He's retirement age. (laughs) He was retirement age. He had retired a couple of times um, throughout his long tenure in the forces. Uh, He started off as uh, an artillery uh, officer standing next to really big guns. Which explains why you have to yell sometimes to get his attention. <laughs> I was just going to say, see, like... <laughs> He's losing his hearing and refuses to admit it. Uh, so there's that. And then he remustered into uh, the finance trade and kind of built his career off that. And it was that finance trade that took him to Bosnia in 1995 um, as the war was winding down. So it was still a very scary four months for us. He was replacing a paymaster and he was there. Um, yeah, they couldn't go outside. Like, they're camp was uh, portables, like school portables, that type of building. They weren't allowed outside of those without a flak jacket and a helmet on oh because gosh. they were shooting into the camps. He's there as part of the I-4, um, International Force uh, UN mission. So a little dicey. So uh, he does not like so much to celebrate Remembrance Day. In his words, it's a day off for me. So why the hell am I going to go outside and interact with people? It's, uh, I'm celebrating myself by doing what I want. Uh, that's mellowed over the years. Like now that he's out and retired, he'll go to some ceremonies. But 
for the most part, it's mostly me thanking him profusely on November 11th and him being like, that's my job. (laughs) So I appreciate my dad. I appreciate my friend Rachel's husband who served in Afghanistan right after they got married. That was a rough tour of duty for her Um, and all of their colleagues who have served and continue to serve. Important, important work they all do. Yes, and work that I know myself I wouldn't want to do. So I value the people in this society that will do it for us. Let's get into our stories today. How do you want to do this? Who's going first? Do you want to go first? Sure. I'll go first. For my topic, I think too often we associate war with men and the efforts that they put in. And obviously, it's we can't undervalue it. Um, they Men do make quite a lot of sacrifices. But over history, I think we have overlooked the story of women and their experiences in war. Now, I'm a historian. Uh, I say that a lot. <laughs> you have a tattoo on my forehead at this point. However, I've done more history, I think, rabbit holes yes. than you have. Yes, very true. <laughs> Um, so, but this, this rabbit hole is getting into the history of it. So I've enjoyed that. Um, but as a historian, I'm not a fan or advocate for her story, which is what the newfangled feminists are wanting to call it. But I'm also not a a Whig historian and these, it's named after the 18th century Whig politicians who were white men who thought they ruled everything and well, they did politically, but there's no need to justify or explain your way. And as a historian, a Whig historian, it means that you just tell the story that you want and you ignore those pesky things called facts. So I think I fall kind of in between the two of them. Like a proper historian? Like yeah. Like everything? Well, well, now we're getting into shades of yeah, gray. <laughs> um, really, there's a school of history, a history called Orientalism, which was pioneered by Edward Said. I know you kind of... That's not a great word, but in this yeah. case, it's it really what it came to represent was history from below or the middle. So telling the stories of the people, not just the politicians or the, the great generals. And so that's really what I want to do today. Um, I want to honor some of the women who get overlooked in favor of big battles or politicians and generals. So I'm going to be talking about war nurses, war brides and war mothers to honor those uh, women. Um, so for my money, war nurses have to be some of the baddest bitches that have ever walked the face of this earth. Oh, yeah. They're like, holy shit. Nursing is not easy. We, Andy and I both worked with and for nurses. So like we, we understand a little bit what they go through. Uh, and that's in the cushy comfort of a modern hospital. So I cannot even begin to imagine what war nursing feels like. Um, Nursing itself is hard. It's physical, emotional. The education is rigorous. uh, And that's just for modern nurses. Pick up those women and put them down in the trenches of Europe. And I mean, times a million for how hard it is. War nursing really got its start for the very first time when Ugg bashed Gug on the head and somebody needed to patch up Gug. I mean, there's always been somebody there caring for the fallen. But modern war nursing is, and modern nursing as a profession itself, is really seen to have started with Florence Nightingale. So I headed over to Florence Nightingale's museum's website to get this little bio on her. She was born in a middle-class family in Italy, but her family was English, in 1820. She sensed that her calling was not to live the traditional life of marriage and motherhood, but instead to serve uh, her community and to do good works out in the world. So in the 1850s, when Florence was a grown woman and kind of starting off on her career, nursing wasn't viewed as a reputable profession to have. 
It was mostly undertaken by poor women who needed to support themselves and their family. And it was a case of really scraping the bottom of the barrel to get someone in to care for your family member. Because at this point, hospitals weren't the common place to go when you were sick. So it was in your home. Yeah. So you paid what you got what you paid for. And most people didn't pay a lot. Florence Nightingale really set out to fight the stigma uh, of nursing and to pursue her career in it. What got her going was the Crimean War, which uh, in 1854 was starting to get really heated up. The reports coming out of the Crimea into the rest of Europe were of absolutely deplorable conditions, and Nightingale felt that she had to be involved to improve the care of wounded soldiers. So she and a group of about 40 like-minded women headed to the front, and while there, uh, Nightingale led the charge to set up field hospitals and instituted policies about cleanliness and professionalism. She's renowned for making the rounds of her patients at all hours to check on them, and that's how she got the nickname Lady of the Lamp, because she would go around in the night uh, with her lamp just to check on all of her patients. And so if you look at a lot of modern nursing organizations, they'll have a lamp in their logo or crest. But it's usually not the actual... No. It would look more like a genie lamp, what she yes. would have. Because that's the traditional um, academic-looking lamp that you used to see, so they've kind of co-opted that, but... The idea of the lamp yeah. is centered around Florence yes. Nightingale and this lady of the lamp. Uh, Nightingale learned a lot when she was in Crimea, and she took all of that knowledge and turned it into nursing as we know it in the modern professional sense. In 1859, she published a book called Notes on Nursing, which called for such things as infection control, a healthy diet, and specialized care for patients, and it's still wild, widely read and studied. So... The techniques and the knowledge have advanced, but the theory and the philosophy behind it are still very much current and understood by today's nurses. So that was published in 59, and it's in the uh, public domain now. If you want to go and read it, you could for free. In 1860, uh, Nightingale set up the first formal nursing school in London, uh, and it became the pattern for all nursing schools at the time. Uh, Nightingale nurses became the pattern card throughout the modern Western worlds for how you were supposed to behave and act and treat your patients. So that's a little bit on Florence and she was really the first kind of modern war nurse and she started the nursing profession. And then I found an amazing article by Patricia D'Antanio. It was published in the Lancet in 2002 and the title is Nurses in War. And she eloquently describes the war nurse as follows. So quote, Historically, nurses have gone to war both as paradigms of caring femininity and as expert practitioners with substantive clinical and organizational skills. This powerful combination of character and competence took these women away from traditional roles and expectations and gave them the chance to participate as few other women could in the tumultuous events of their time. War tested nurses as it did fighting men. Nurses were not found wanting. So I think that was a really eloquent Yes. Beautiful way to kind of sum up what they were doing. Until Nightingale came along, nursing care in war was mostly provided by men. Some had formal training, but usually they just had a lot of experience um, kind of patching up wounds uh, in emergency situations. And we're talking about Western European tradition here. I'm not well-versed enough about Eastern and Asiatic uh, traditions to talk about them. Women's role as field nurses uh, was facilitated by the rise of the public hospital where female nurses became a common sight. So like I said, this whole concept of 
nursing or being cared for when sick in a hospital is a fairly new invention. Usually you were just taken care of at home by whatever your family could afford. But as public health became more common and the hospitals became like a center for this care, nurses were seen more often and people understood what it took to be a nurse. And so the reputation of a nurse started to improve. The reality was and still is that patients do better in the hospital than being cared for at home. The order, systemization, the watchful vigilance, skill, and knowledge that nurses play is a big part of that reason. So when war rocked Europe at the start of the 20th century, many nurses uh, had the skills, had the experience, and a sense of patriotic duty to care for the sick and injured, and that's when really war nursing became a feminine profession on the front. This was also an era when women were finding new levels of independence uh, and specialized professions provided them with venues to enter into the public sphere as opposed to being stuck at home, not stuck at home, but being at home and just being in the private sphere. As a consequence and to kind of further along that um, pathway, war nurses became glamorized at home. So not only was it seen as a good profession, it was seen as a noble and glamorous one to follow. The work, though, very far from glamorous. The warfare was new. Uh, Trench war was really just the dirtiest, most awful type of war uh, that Europe had seen. The wounds were ugly. New type of machinery, new type of warfare, like chemical warfare, made it really hard. And the conditions in general were very rough. And it created a weird paradox for these women. So they were serving uh, an almost maternal role to their patients, but they were also patching them up to go out and kill and to do further damage. Or to be killed. Or to be killed. And they also had this weird spot in the army where they had authority, but no formal rank. So they were in charge of soldiers, but not to order. The, like it was, it was a weird little paradox. So on top of all the hard work they're doing, they're also struggling to carve out their spot. As a final observation from D'Antonio, she says, Few settings but those of war seem to have given trained nurses the sense of skill, initiative, autonomy, and respect that they have always cherished. And I think it's a well-earned cherish that they have for that. (laughs) Hard, hard work. Thank a war nurse. Thank any army nurse that you know. Um, They do a tremendous amount of work, even in, in the modern now they're trained up to the same level, if not higher, than hospital nurses to deal with emergency situations. Yeah. And they go do it out in the field. So <laughs> so what about the women that were left behind? Very often, they would meet and fall in love with soldiers that just happened to be passing through their hometown from ports of call around the world as they flooded into the European theater of war. In Britain, this led to the phenomenon that impacted Canada, and that is the war bride. So women who married soldiers arriving in England and then going to their home either with or without them as a quote-unquote war bride. Veteran Affairs Canada has a really good website dedicated to these women. I was surprised that that's where I found it, but it made sense as I learned more about them. The term war bride refers to an estimated 48,000 young women who met and married Canadian servicemen during the Second World War. These brides were mostly from Britain, but a few thousand were also from other areas of Europe, such as the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Italy, and Germany. And um, I think some of the descendants of war brides that I know have been from the Netherlands because there was a large Canadian contingent in that area in Belgium during the war. So that mm. uh, does not surprise me at all. There were also war brides following the First World War, and it's estimated that 54,000 relatives came back to Canada when the troops were demobilized. But the records weren't as good as the 
following the Second World War for reasons we'll see. Hundreds of thousands of Canadian soldiers ended up stationed in Britain during the wars. It was a training and rationing spot uh, before they headed into Europe. Britain was also a common place to be sent to recover from illness or injuries, like Andy's grandfather. Yeah. In a time when you're looking death in the face, I mean, it's no wonder that you're going to form some really tight, intense bonds with the men and the women around you. Sometimes they'd fall in love. Sometimes they'd just get knocked up. Other times they'd decide to get married. It was a bit of a mixed bag. While there was an official policy discouraging these types of marriages, there was also a recognition that you just weren't going to stop them. So (laughs) you just went with it. Hormones. Yeah. Young people. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a mixed bag full, which is waiting for either a baby or a marriage. (laughs) Well, I mean, also, especially in Britain, in the Second World War, they were also sort of in the thick of it, too, especially they were in London. Yeah. With the Blitz and the bombings. And so... Yeah, it's both people very... Emotionally charged. Yeah, just a very time that we can never understand. Yeah, exactly. So there was an official policy to discourage them. That didn't make a difference. It still happened. Even though to marry, a soldier needed his commanding officer's permission. So you might want to have stopped it, but eventually you can't look the other way. The official has to get involved. The number of war brides grew so great that the Canadian government set up the Canadian Wives Bureau in London to help them make arrangements to eventually join their husbands in Canada. So they created an entire office just to help these women. The Bureau also encouraged the creation of the Canadian Wives Club and published information in living on living in Canada and a Canadian cookbook. So all these ways to help women adjust to the new lives they were going to be living. Uh, it was there was an interesting line in the the article I was reading that there were a handful of male war brides who were married to Canadian service women who were overseas at the time and were going to immigrate to be with them and they were jokingly calling themselves male war brides. <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's true, male war grooms, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the only way to travel to Canada at this time was by boat. And in the 40s, if you were traveling during the war itself, there was a very real danger of German Mm U-boats. So the Red Cross often provided ships as much protection as possible while crossing the Atlantic. But they were also traveling on Canadian government ships. Like once they'd kind of offloaded the troops in Europe, they had to come back to get more. So rather than deadheading the ship and going empty, they would take back Uh, war brides or families of servicemen and servicemen that had to return. So there were war brides and children. So there were war brides going back to Canada before their husbands were, which we'll talk about a little bit too. The government of Canada would transport war brides on troop ships, kitted out for them, as well as converted luxury liners. So the Queen Mary actually served as a ship for war brides for a while. And there was a story about them using the pool area to hang out uh, dirty nappies, like wash nappies, to dry in the breeze. So when you arrived in Canada, as with all immigrants of the age, uh, war brides would arrive in Halifax at Pier 21. Uh, Pier 21 is now a hallowed place in Canadian history for immigration uh, and geologists, uh, genealogists and historians. Uh, If you are looking to learn more about your own family, if they've come over to Canada at any point, you are going to eventually end up at Pier 21. They have great resources. They have great uh, historians and researchers on staff to help you. I've used them recently. They're wonderful. They're our version of Ellis Island. Yes. Good point. Yes. The Americans would get that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So Pier 21 in Halifax. 
From Halifax, which is on the very, very east coast of Canada, war brides would then travel by train to the hometowns of their husbands. So imagine being from someplace in England where London is never more than a couple hours away, and all of a sudden you're stepping off of a multi-week boat trip onto a train ride that if you're going out to BC could take a week plus. The sheer massiveness of Canadian soil is just... Yeah. It was mind-blowing for some of these war brides who were very young and away from home for the first time. Some women made the journey alone if they married and came back right away. Others with their children, and if they were very lucky, their husbands would be with them. Following the war, though, very often they were traveling to meet their husbands. So the priority was always to repatriate the men back home and then use whatever resources were available to bring their families afterwards. Unfortunately, and probably not surprisingly, not all marriages went smoothly. Getting married because you're hyped up at a wartime adrenaline level probably isn't going to make for a lasting relationship of any kind. Uh, So while the government of Canada would pay the travel costs for women to come to Canada, there was never any money to send them back if things didn't work out. So (laughs) There's no return to sender. No. So imagine your husband is still serving over in Europe. You've come home and his mother doesn't like the fact that he married some uppity English bitch. And now things just aren't going well and you want to go home, but you're in the middle of Prairie, Saskatchewan. Good luck. So oftentimes the Red Cross would have to step in and help these women get home as if it was a humanitarian crisis, (laughs) which some women and their mother-in-laws, I... Yes, I've yes. heard them describe as a humanitarian crisis yes. in the making. So <laughs> I quite like my mother-in-law. I've got that for you. But yes, I know a few. <laughs> it would be. If the uh, Red Cross wasn't available, oftentimes expats like other war brides, other people from the community would pitch in what they could to help send these women home to their families in Britain. There is no doubt, however, that these women helped build post-war Canada. We had a massive baby boom right after that. And if 48,000 women were coming over, they played a big part in our boom of population. (laughs) So the last women I want to talk about today is possibly the saddest. I mean, I know I always start crying at this point during our Remembrance Day ceremony, and that is the Silver Cross Mothers. So from the Royal Canadian Legion's website, and they're the ones that organize um, the Silver Cross Mother um, piece of the the national ceremony. The Memorial Cross, which is most commonly known as the Silver Cross, was first awarded on December 1st, 1919, and it's presented to mothers and widows of Canadian sailors, aviators, and soldiers who died for their country during wartime. Every year, the Canadian Legion chooses a national Silver Cross mother to attend the Remembrance Day ceremony in Ottawa on November 11th and to lay a wreath uh, at the War Memorial. And she is alongside the Prime Minister, the Governor General, and other VIP dignitaries. Her role is very important and very cherished and honoured in our ceremonies. Candidates are nominated by individual Legion branches. And the participation that the National Silver Cross Mother has in the ceremony is that she is participating on behalf of all mothers who have lost children in military service. And that's what kills me every single year, is that thought. Uh, her mother, uh, her tenure will start on the 1st of November every year, and in addition to the November 11th ceremony, she performs other official functions in order to honor the fallen from other conflicts around the world. So we are recording this episode at the end of October, and unfortunately we don't yet know who the 2018 Silver Cross Mother will be. Uh, it's announced on November 1st. 
But I do want to just take a moment to talk about the 2017 Silver Cross Mother. Um, I would talk about all of them if we had time because they're so important to our remembrance of um, our soldiers. So the 2017 Silver Cross Mother was Diana Abel, whose son, Corporal Michael David Abel, died while serving as part of Operation Deliverance in Somalia in May 1993. Corporal Abel was there as part of the UN peacekeeping effort during the early part of the Somali Civil War. He was 28 when he died and had been in the forces for eight years. He had a passion for cars and motorcycles, travel, and family, and he was very well liked and respected by his fellow soldiers. So much so that there is an area, the Goha Haven Air Force uh, Base up in Nunavut. Uh, it's called the Jump Zone, and it's named for him. When his unit later served in Bosnia uh, in 93, so the year that he died, they also named their base there for him. In uh, Ottawa, our National Military Cemetery is named Beechwood, so um, Arlington in the States, Beechwood is our equivalent. There's a tree planted in his name uh, at Beechwood. Once we know who the 2018 Silver Cross mother is, I'll do a little PS recording for this episode just to let everyone know. As promised, here's some information about the 2018 Silver Cross mother. This year, the post is held by Mrs. Anita Senarini, whose son, Private Thomas Welsh, passed away in 2004. In 2003, Thomas was serving in Afghanistan as part of Operation Athena. Within three months of returning home to Petawawa, Thomas took his life. His death, according to the Legion's website, was later deemed attributable to his military service and in fact is now recognized as the first death by suicide following the Afghan mission. The Legion's website tells us a little bit about who Thomas was, and I'd just like to share that with you because I think Thomas sounds like a wonderful person. During his deployment, he was described as quiet and cheerful. He had a wonderful attitude amongst his peers, and he really helped boost platoon morale. All those around him felt this positive attitude. He had a great deal of respect for the army and for his uh, peers and superiors. He was passionate about life and had an adventurous spirit. He was an avid participant in anything having to do with the outdoors, like hiking and snowboarding. And he shared uh, that love of the outdoors as both a scout and then a cub leader. The bio for him on the Legion website ends with his enthusiasm and caring nature were infectious. So while Thomas's death is marked as the first death by suicide attributed to uh, the results of the Afghan mission, the history of PTSD in our armed forces is something that's becoming much more talked about, much more openly recognized and acknowledged. And that is a wonderful thing in that it allows the system and it allows the vets a chance to support and help one another so that deaths like that of Thomas's aren't uh, as common and as repeated. So just a thank you to Thomas for his service. A thank you to his mother, uh, Anita, for standing in and representing all the mothers who have lost children uh, in war this year and throughout Canadian history. And take a moment to thank a vet today. That's what today is all about. So I'm not ever going to be the person to say, let's stop remembering and honoring men on Remembrance Day in favor of women. Like, no. don't ever put that on me. That is not what I'm saying today at all. My heart is and always has been with the forces uh, and the personnel, but also the people that support them. Having yes. been a daughter of a soldier in war situations, I, I get it. I'm just saying we need to look past the battles and the big names to the everyday lives and everyday experiences that women had because those women were also very profoundly touched by war. So let's 
take a little bit more time to think about them every year around this time and uh, respecting them for the contributions that they made. So that is my story for this week. So, uh, yeah, so to continue on the Remembrance Day theme, because we tend to talk a lot about um, the Second World War, the First World War, Mm. um, the major wars. Um, So I'm going to talk about a few lesser known wars. And uh, even though one of them is quite well known, it just wasn't the sort of particulars over it wasn't well known personally to me. So sounds good. First is the War of Jerkin's Ear. Jenkins' Jenkins ear. Jenkins' ear in 1739 to 1748. It was fought in the Caribbean and what is now Georgia and Florida between Great Britain and Spain. A lot of this is Great Britain. The conflict was part of a larger war of Austrian succession. Mm -hmm. A war in which nearly every country in Europe was involved. Its unusual name was born from a naval incident in the West Indies. Captain Robert Jenkins' boat, which was English, was boarded by Spanish forces. Spanish captain accused the British vessel of piracy and cut off Captain Jenkins' left ear. Mm -hmm. Some accounts say that Captain Jenkins brought his ear and presented it to the English Parliament as he told his story. Shout out to Professor Connors, who dramatically reenacted him throwing a piece of his ear down on the floor of Parliament (laughs) while he was teaching us the subject. Nice. (laughs) But it took eight years from that incident for Mm -hmm. the actual war to break out. The British South Sea Company and the opposition politicians used this story to, to... to create outrage against the Spanish because originally the story was like, meh, most people were like, whatever. Yeah. You were probably a pirate. They bullfinched it. Yeah. So they really took the story and used it to create outrage against the Spanish in hopes of improving British trade in the Caribbean and to create pressure so the Spanish would not uh, renege on a lucrative agreement which allowed British slave traders to trade in the Spanish Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So the war resulted in very heavy uh, British casualties in North America and marked the first time a battalion of colonial Americans was put together. Mm. The war was a wash, really, with the British not really winning any new land or really increasing trade. As, and over the course of the year, the war, the South Seas Company had shut down anyway, mm-hmm. and slavery uh, was sort of waning in Britain. So the reasons that this war was started really, by the time it ended, really didn't matter. Right. And the <laughs> British casualties compared to the Spanish casualties was three times. So the Brit- British lost a lot of people for nothing, like yeah. no gain. So that war was a wash, and a lot of poor, poor people died. Uh, for absolutely nothing. This, uh, the next one is the Anglo-Zanzibar Zanzibar War from August 27th, 1896. I know. See, I'm doing more history. You are. Yes. Look at me go. <laughs> uh, this war is the shortest war in history, lasting only 38 minutes. <laughs> I'm kidding you not. <laughs> the actual war only lasted 38 minutes. <laughs> From tantrums that last longer than that, like recent tantrums too. In 1896, there was a new sultan came into power in Zanzibar, and he wanted the country to be free of British control. So he refused to ask the British permission for his uh, enthronement. Uh, this pissed off the British because they wow. like to be in control of things. Uh, 
British. Uh, and they told him to leave or they would make him leave. Okay. Uh, so he responded by barricading himself within the walls of the palace. They had sort of laid out a, you have to leave by this date or we're going to make you. Yeah. Sort of a parenting technique, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I use it all the time. Can't five. The British, of course, were like, hell no, that's not going to fly. Um, because they had to leave by, you know, X time or they were going to uh, make them. They had five British vessels in the harbor outside the palace waiting for the or else part. Right. Yeah. So when the, since the Sultan did not leave, the British opened fire, sinking three Zanzibar ships and killing or wounding over 500 Zanzibarians. Mm. Most of the dead or wounded were due to fires uh, raging in the palace. The Sultan surrendered. And again, this all happened in 38 minutes. The Sultan was expelled from the country and ended up in German East Africa. Hmm. Well, in case you were wondering, the British experienced no wounded, only one wounded and no dead in this quote unquote war. It's a lesson that toddlers have to learn over and over again. It's mom and dad are bigger than you and can physically put you where you need to be. And so you can throw that tantrum, but you're going to lose it. <laughs> yes. The next one is the Second Boer War. Mm-hmm. And this gets into our Canadian history. Uh, October 1899 to May 1902. Again, this war was British Empire against someone. Yep. This is what happens when you try and invade the world. You piss off people, don't it? Yeah. This time, the British were fighting two Boer states, the South African Republic and the Orange Free State, over the British influence in South Africa. And the Boers, do you explain who they are? No, I don't. I meant to do that. They're the Dutch, the former... Because South Africa used to belong to the Dutch. Yes. The British got it as a colony. So the Boers were the remaining Dutch colonial descendants that were there. So this is still white war. Yeah. They actually, at some point, I don't think I wrote it down, they decided they weren't going to arm the African natives. They wanted to keep this as a friendly, gentleman white war. Uh, At the start of the war, the Boers were very well armed and caught the British unprepared. Striking first, besieging Ladysmith, Kimberly, and uh, Mackin? M-A-H... In the early in early 1900, and winning important battles uh, in a few other places that I cannot pronounce, nor can I read because my handwriting is awful. The British were staggered at first. They decided to bring in a large number of soldiers and fight back. In this influx of troops was the groups from various British colonies answering British call for help. Canada was one of those colonies. The ruling Conservative Party at the time was very in favor of participation in the war, but French Canadians and a number of other groups at the time were not. In the end, um, 7,400 Canadians served in South Africa. Of that number, 224 died, 252 were wounded, uh, and several were decorated with the Victoria Cross. If I'm not mistaken, they had to be volunteers. Like, they're because they couldn't decide yes. on an official policy to send them. If you were going, it was as a volunteer battalion. The British brought in over 400,000 men, and it overwhelmed the Boers. No shit. Uh, With Britain quickly seizing control of both the Orange Free State and the South African Republic. 
Even though uh, public opinion on the war was largely hostile to the British, even inside the empire, the government persisted. Who also persisted was the Boers. <laughs> Being overwhelmed by the style of the British forces, they refused to surrender and resorted to guerrilla warfare. The British uh, countered the guerrilla warfare by setting up a complex web of blockages in the conquered territory, moving civilians from their homes into concentration camps, where over 26,000 Boer women and children died from disease and starvation. Yikes. Way to go, Britain. Not a good moment. No. Uh, eventually, the war was finished, uh, but it did become bitter in the end, obviously. Though, to end the war, the Boers were given £3 million for reconstruction and limited self-government. This ended the Orange Free State and the South African Republic and created the Union of South Africa, as we know, like under the domain of the British Empire as mm-hmm. we knew it. But yes, uh, the concentration camps started out fairly benign and then became quite overcrowded yeah. and disease. And so they had limited rations. And if the, the men of those families were still actively fighting, they would get no food. So women and children were dying of starvation and disease at the hands of the British. Eventually, uh, various African tribes got involved as, as a, a way to dig at the white man. Yeah. Uh, sort of, I think, descended into a bit of chaos in the end. War but usually does. Then, of course, they had to sit down, talk it through, and sign a treaty. Uh, so my last one is, I think it's my last one, let me double check, It's the Korean War. So I know that this is probably well known to most people. I know of it, but it's just that the, the actual if, ands, or buts about it wasn't yeah. personally known to me very well. So, yeah. Uh, it's like I know about the Vietnam War. I don't particularly know a lot about the Vietnam War. Like yeah. why it started, how it started, that sort of stuff. So I did the Korean War. At the end of the Cold War, Korea was split into two states. However, both sides, the ones we know now, North and South Korea, however, both sides claimed to be the sole legitimate government of all Korea, and neither accepted the border as permanent. The conflict escalated into open warfare when North Korean forces invaded the South in June 1950. The UN Security Council authorized the formation and dispatch of UN forces to Korea with over 21 countries contributing to the effort. With Canada sending 8,000 troops to the conflict, the US had sent over 300,000 personnel contributing to 90% of the UN force. The war on land became a war of attrition with Seoul changing hands four times in the last two years of the fight. The war in the air, however, was never a stalemate, with jet fighters confronting each other in battles and the North Korea North Korea suffering heavy bombing campaigns. Because North Korea was backed, not surprisingly, by China and the Soviet Union, yeah. much like now, and with and South being backed by everybody else. Yeah. Uh, so Soviet Union would send their fighters in with the UN fighters, and they would actually the article I read said that this was the first time jet fighters mm-hmm. uh, actively engaged each other in warfare. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's jet fighters, and like we associate dog fights with World War Two and World War One. But I guess they jet fighters, yeah. So <laughs> they were dog fighting with jet planes in yeah. the Korean War, and UN was bombing the crap out of North Korea. Mm-hmm. The fighting ended on July twenty seventh, nineteen fifty three, with a armistice agreement signed that created and set up what we know now as closed north and the demilitarized zone between north and south korea Mm -hmm. 
Since no peace treaty was signed, some say the two Koreas are still at a war engaged in frozen conflict. Yeah, it's still at war. (laughs) The war hasn't ended yet. In the end, Canada had, out of the 8,000 deployed, 516 dead, 1,042 wounded, one MIA, and 33 POWs. The civilian loss, however, in this war was very high, with an estimated 2.5 million being killed or wounded in the two Koreas. A lot of that being North Korea because of the bombing campaigns. And still a lot of families split. Yes, still a lot of Every so often, it just happened, every so often the two states will agree to send people to go visit family members, and it's getting to the point where there's fewer and fewer people to take advantage of those visits. But they're only for a couple of days, and it's it's really sad. the, The Daily had that good episode where they talked to the girl who yes the father, father had gone to a conference in North Korea and that's yeah. when the border shut and, and then he couldn't stuck. come home yeah. and they weren't sure what happened to him so then they ended up immigrating to California California and it was the granddaughter who managed to get back and discover that he had set up a separate family but he never forgot about his first family he just could never get back yeah he could never send any sort of signal or anything and the white, the woman he married was also a South Korean who got stuck in North Korea. So messed up. Yeah. And to, they're still technically at war, like yeah. you said some people. But, like, I do believe it's still the official position is that they're on a police Yeah, they're releasing a frozen, action right now. Yeah. Frozen conflict. So we had that story a few weeks ago about the Second World War not ending until 2010. But yeah. this one is... Also dragging on for a long, long time. time. Yeah. So we're into what, 60, almost 70 years? So um, we hope that you enjoyed our stories for this week. Uh, If you would like to see our show notes and learn a little bit more about the show, you can head out to our website, www.rabbitholespodcast.com. Or you can drop us an email to tell us about a rabbit hole that you like to fall down every so often or that you wish we would cover. Our email is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. If you want to connect on the social, our Twitter account is at rabbitholespod. Facebook page is set up under the name rabbitholespodcast. And Andy is curating an Instagram page for us at rabbitholespodcast. Yes, I am. It's the only thing I use Instagram for, (laughs) basically. Um, You can also find us and support us at Patreon. Uh, If you like what we do and uh, you want to throw us a few shekels, we would love it. That keeps us going. It helps us to upgrade our equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can connect. You can look look us up on Patreon or you can connect via the support tab on the website. I'm having a lot of trouble with English. (laughs) And it is my first language, sort of. Newfoundland is my first language. Uh, Lots of fun stuff coming to the not-so-secret part of our website for patrons of the Velveteen tier and above. Also, you get special episodes from the two of us, depending on what you have, what level you're at. Um, Also, you can support us by getting some of our fabulous merchandise. (laughs) Um, You can look us up at redbubble.com or find the merch tab on our website. You can also support us by just telling us that you like what we're doing and giving us a good rating or review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever 
You get your uh, podcast with the exception of Google Play because they don't let you do that. Uh, it helps with our visibility and also helps validate what we do as because uh, we like we need validation. We're that yes. type of people. Yeah. We are those people. Yeah, <laughs> we have anxieties and stuff like that. I have low self esteem. <laughs> So one last thing to do, and that's, well, two last things to do, actually. Yes. The first is to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And the second is to thank all service members, regardless of when, where, why, or how they serve their country. Women, men, anybody in between. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Have a great week, guys. Uh-huh.